The Jodcast, podcasting for all the right reasons, with Nick Rattenbury, Tim O'Brien, and Colin Stewart. The Jodcast, January 2009 Extra Edition. Hello everybody and welcome to the January 2009 Extra Edition of The Jodcast. It's just going to be me, unfortunately, for this episode, as Stuart is away currently for research. However, we've still got a good program for you to listen to this time through, and I just want to remind you that the Jodcast has also got a video channel for you to watch various things which we are producing. So please go to the website, www.jodcast.net, and check out some of the videos that we've been doing in addition to the audio podcast. The last one was the second day we spent down at the Royal Observatory Greenwich, checking out their new planetarium. So it's a good one. Go and check it out, please. It's fantastic, and do let us know what you think of it. Also, our forum is up and running at the moment. Please do go log on, register, and just take a look around. Start a new discussion, join in one which is currently going on, ask your questions. There are people here who are just hanging out waiting to answer your questions and discuss astronomy, the Jodcast, or maybe even life in general. We can't promise to solve all your problems, but we can give you an interesting discussion about astronomy. Now, as viewers of the video podcast will already know, they are written and presented by Colin Stewart and Emily Fair. For this episode of the audio Jodcast, Colin Stewart has foregone the camera and just taken his voice recorder off to the Herschel Museum in Bath. So here's what he found out. Last week, whilst working at my job at the Royal Observatory Greenwich, I was lucky enough to see the planet Uranus through the giant 28-inch telescope. I was captivated by this eerie blue disc, faint in the clear night sky. So I've come down to Bath on a beautiful clear day to visit the Herschel Museum, the house where William Herschel discovered the seventh planet in 1781. The old house is tucked away on a quiet side street of Bath, far away from the hustle and bustle of the ancient town centre. It's hard to believe that in this quaint English house, Herschel changed the way we looked at our solar system forever. Let's head inside and meet Debbie James, the curator of the museum. Okay, so we're here in um, the Herschel's kitchen in the uh, Herschel Museum in Bath, and I'm joined by Debbie James. And um, so tell us, Debbie, how did this museum uh, come about? The museum came about by chance, really. There was um, a threat to actually pull down part of the street because some of it was damaged during the last war, and Norfolk Crescent, which is beyond it. And fortunately, Elizabeth uh, Hilliard and her husband managed to raise the money to purchase it, and then they set it up as a museum to, to basically save the house for posterity. Definitely a good idea. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful house. I was saying before how it's kind of tucked away. You wouldn't really um, notice it, I guess, unless you well, knew it was here. Well, this is one of the problems we face as a museum, actually. <laughs> it is slightly off the beaten track in Bath, and of course there are many interesting attractions in the city, and we're slightly tucked away, which means we perhaps don't get the numbers of visitors that we would like. But however, it is a fascinating house, and uh, it is one of the few um, original interiors of houses of this scale in Bath, which is open to the public. So not only is it a place of pilgrimage for people interested in astronomy and science, it's also a very re good representation of a house of this size and class, dating from the middle of the Georgian period. So how did the Herschels um, manage to, or how did they come about to being in this house? The Herschels came to Bath, or William Herschel came to Bath in the 1760s. 
to make his um, or further his career as a musician. He'd already established himself in um, Halifax and Leeds and places in the north of the country, but he came to Bath because Bath was obviously the vibrant social scene outside of London. And it was certainly the place to make your mark um, as a musician. He was quite ambitious. So he settled in Bath, and it was a few years later that he went back to Hanover to rescue his sister Caroline from a life of domestic drudgery. He brought her here, and she um, helped William set up house. She also helped him with his astronomical observations, and then later became a musician and singer in her own right. I wanted to find out more about the astronomy that went on in this intriguing house. I spoke to Andy Burns, an astronomer with the museum, and I asked him to explain how Herschel came to be the discoverer of the first new planet since antiquity. Well, one of the main things to realise, he came to this house, as you already heard, and took up his astronomy whilst he was living at this house, but did move around some other accommodations at the time. He was still using the lower floor and the workshop in the March of the uh, 1781 and of course it was at this period he'd finished doing some music in Bath and came out to do some observing and using this downstairs place where he had some telescopes he took his seven foot telescope out into the garden and he was really looking for double stars at the time Uh, and we'll discuss some of the work that he was doing on double stars but uh, whilst he was viewing one of these stars which was the star 8 Geminorum (laughs) as we know it today uh, he actually saw a blob that he knew wasn't there when he last recorded it obviously he picked periods about 6 months apart to revisit stars that he suspected as, uh, as double stars Blobs are always very intriguing. Blobs are intriguing. And he wondered what it was. Now then, remember he was an amateur astronomer Mm. at the time. His career was music. He was an amateur who knew from the harmonies of the spheres and the work that Kepler did that philosophy said there can only be six planets. Mm. What was this blob going to (laughs) do? Would he stand up and say, look, I've defined this as, as a planet? Well, no, he took the course of saying, I've discovered a comet. Then over the next couple of nights, he, he tracked it and realised that it had rather a strange path for a comet. So he then sent the recordings out, and this is where you have the modern equivalent of remote astronomy, but <laughs> you use horseback instead of the internet to get use of another telescope. And he got confirmation going through uh, particularly continental people that indeed it was Berlin Observatory that confirmed he had discovered not a comet but a planet. But were probably quite aware that he was discerning quite hard outlines to that blob that he was seeing Mm. towards the end. So, of course, then he had the honour of discovering the seventh planet. And... This was only part of the work that he had already done here at Bath. And some of his major work, I would say, was actually in the development of the telescope. He took telescope great strides forwards. Whilst he lived here at this house, 19 New King Street, he started off building refractors, 
they were the easiest things to make with, with ground, glass ground glass lenses at either side. Unfortunately, birth, as you might not aware, be aware on a sunny day like this, it can be quite damp. Right. <laughs> and uh, he was making tubes with Caroline out of cardboard, and Alexander was here working as well. And they discovered that they bent, and it's not very useful looking through a banana instead of no, a exactly. uh, So he then actually went for the Gregorian design and started with steel mirrors at the bottom, realising that he, with a Gregorian scope, that you need not have such a good uh, parabola, particularly towards the centre where the curve is so sensitive, mm. because you're going to drill through it to put your eyepiece through. Sure. Right? So from this point of view, the Gregorian was his next route before he went on to the Newtonian telescopes, of course. He was having great help here with his friend Bulmer, who had moved down to Bath from Leeds. He'd stayed with him when he was working in Leeds, and Bulmer had already invited him. And when he came to work in Bath, Bulmer, as an optician, obviously worked with him, lent him books on optics by Isaac Newton, and so he soon learned that the Newtonian design was perhaps the way to go. So he was building, he did over 795 experiments on the design and build of the refracting telescope that he eventually used. And these are still in evidence at the Royal Astronomical Society. You can see every little bit. This was one of the features of his astronomy and all the work that he did careful notation, his recording of experiments, his recording of sites he saw fantastically recorded everywhere. There are acres of paperwork <laughs> read, with this kind. Yes. Uh, and these experiments he did on telescope building even went through to designs of scoring in the pitch to actually <laughs> make the to, to, to be able to grind the mirror to the best effect. Uh, he also did work uh, within that on uh, building a mirror grinding machine. All this was being done whilst he was director of music here in Bath. He had over 30 students a day coming through. He was teaching music. He was earning over £600 a year. As we've heard, the Herschels were actually better known, at least initially, more for their music than for their astronomical work. Curious, I asked Debbie James to tell me more about this musical family and the way that they were regarded in society. He wasn't perhaps the greatest musician of his day, but there was an awful lot of competition out there at the time, so he did extremely well. He wrote a huge amount of music. Okay, so we've went to the upstairs to the music room where there's um, a plethora of instruments around us. So tell us more um, about these instruments and how they relate to the Herschels. Well, as you can see, there are a variety of musical instruments here, all dating from the period in which Herschel worked as a musician in Bath. Perhaps the most significant uh, are the remains of the organ at the Octagon Chapel, where, where William Herschel made his musical debut in the city. A few of the pipes remain, which are mounted on the wall, and part of the keyboard to this great organ, which unfortunately was broken up at the end of the 19th century. But there are other things here. Herschel would have written music for most of them. We've got um, a military serpent, which is a beautiful object, and would have been played by his father, possibly, who was in a military band in Hanover. Clarinet, oboe, early flute, um, and this magnificent harp by Sebastian Erard, which is on loan from the Holborn Museum of Art. 
which Herschel certainly wrote music for. Whether he could play the harp, I don't know. And um, this is very important. This is a portrait of, of Herschel's successor as director of music in the city, Veneziano Razzini, who uh, came to Bath just after Herschel left. And uh, there he is painted with his dog, Turk. He was a great <laughs> friend of Haydn. And there is right. this wonderful connection, of course, between Haydn and Herschel, because Haydn came to Slough when the Herschels lived there, and like many people, looked through his telescope at the heavens, and it is said this was the inspiration between a lot of Haydn's musical, sacred musical work, such as the creation, and that is well documented. It's nice to see that uh, overlap between science and art in that way, it goes back that far. It does indeed. There's a great deal of overlap between music and science and art and literature of the period because so many of the poets and writers, uh, creative people of the uh, later part of the 18th century, were inspired by Herschel's discoveries and it appears in poems by Byron and other people. It's, uh, it made a phenomenal impact on the scientific as well as the artistic world. With that in mind, I can't help noticing the bit of the engraving you've got on the wall of um, most important men, or most distinguished men of science. The distinguished the men of science, yes. It's one of, um, I think, six engravings in existence. And as you can see, it shows all of the scientists and um, people who, who made remarkable discoveries, engineering discoveries, during the 18th and early part of the 19th century. William Herschel is seated there as an older man in the corner with a celestial globe beside him, but just about everybody is there, and it is actually framed in the rooms of the Royal Society. So we've got uh, William Smith, Edward Jenner... Um, you can see yeah, never, never Masculine there, sort of a royal... Brunel, Watt, Rennie, everybody who was anybody in the scientific world. And I think it is also an, a vindication of Herschel's success because this man was regarded as an amateur astronomer for much of his life, which indeed he was. But after the discovery of Uranus, he was elevated to the ranks of the Royal Society and taken seriously by the scientific community. But by then, William had, uh, by the discovery of Uranus, William was submitting papers to the Bath Literary um, Philosophical Society and uh, some of these papers were being taken by his patron then Dr Watson who was a member of the Royal Society and began reading his papers to the Royal Society so we know that he was working on some thoughts on what was holding gravity in place i.e. cosmological thoughts way back in the 1770s that is a, yeah, early. very early uh, certainly he did work, one of his first papers was on the uh, determining the height of mountains and craters on the moons, making good regard of spherical mathematics, which he self-taught. Uh, he was actually self-teaching himself another two languages, Russian and uh, Latin. He learnt a bit of Greek as well. Because war in Europe at the time that had driven him from his home in Hanover, they didn't know Russia was going to be dominant, French he could already right. speak, uh, English he could already speak. So he made himself available of any European language he could get hold of. 
then started uh, examining higher mathematics and fluxions. This man, Herschel, studies <laughs> fluxions, and he was self-taught. Um, this is He brought this to bear on everything he was doing. I think he was one of these natural philosophers, philosopher of mm, the time. He, he was quite a polymath. Just what would he have done with a fantastic education? We can only guess at and perhaps looking at his son John, we get to realise some of the achievements that, that he did. You know, William was, you know, he didn't regard himself his father's equal at all. You know, and he was a fantastic polymath. Mm. Uh, but he, he did the work on uh, rotation of Mars, got that uh, accurately to within three minutes. He did work on the rotation of Saturn's rings. He did work, discovered new bands, and actually the, the blurring of the atmospheric bands on Jupiter, which we now know as, as, as effects of, of the rotation of Jupiter actually causing disruptions and turbulence along the edges of these. He could see these with the telescopes he was making. And it is this power of his telescopes that really led him to be such an acclaimed and fantastic astronomer. Walking around the museum, I couldn't help but notice the plethora of original objects belonging to the Herschels. One object in particular caught my eye, a logbook of visitors to the Slough Observatory kept by Caroline. I asked Debbie to explain its significance as further evidence for the high regard in which the Herschels were held. She recorded just about everybody that came through from about um, 1782 onwards, right through until almost the time William died. And it is literally a list of all the great and the good who went mainly to the court and then were brought by the king or someone at court over to look through the telescopes. And again, it is a wonderful collection of names, scientists, um, politicians, royalty, European royalty. One of the names there is, is the father of Isambard Kingdom Brunel who came from Portsmouth Docks to, to visit the Herschels at Slough. Uh, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, is there. And then we've got various other uh, minor royals or important royals. And people like Dr. Watson, Neville Meskelin, astronomers from all over Europe. So it seems it's kind of, I guess, an uh, indication of quite um, how uh, respected the Herschels became, that they were able to attract such a kind of a who's who of society to come and look through the telescope. Yes, indeed, it's a fascinating document. Um, it really shows how many people wanted to know the Herschels and how many people were fascinated by the telescopes that he built and wanted to be part of this great movement in, in science, I believe. This talk of Caroline set me wondering, what was she like as an astronomer? How did she help her brother William? I asked Andy. Well, her prime drive in astronomy followed a trip out with her father who died when she was 13 years old and he actually had asthma going way back then and there was a woodwind instrument player <laughs> that's quite a quite a, quite, handicap. A, quite a handicap and uh, he actually used to take her out for walks and show the constellations but we know that the return of Halley's Comet Right. Uh, around about this time, 1856, was first discovered in Germany by a farmer uh, who was studying the skies and 
Isaacs got to hear of this and took out Caroline to show her comments and she actually expressed a great wonder in comments and how she would love to study comets. Right. And of course we know that she discovered eight comets in her own right. Some were returning comets, uh, some we know now as Comet Enker is, is mm. one of the comets that she discovered. So she uh, was certainly a very great force in that. She did work because of what she was doing with William was a lot of paperwork and uh, the comments, the sweeps that he was making, she was copying through in a smaller telescope alongside. In the late uh, 18th century, she was actually presented the original catalogue of Charles Messier. Oh wow, that's quite, uh, quite a gift. One of those, which had 97 objects in at that time. It didn't have the, the full 110 we know to. In fact, the last one was only ed- added in what, 1920s. <laughs> so we know that the, the, the list had about 97 objects. And as William was doing the sweeps of the skies with his larger telescopes, particularly the 20-foot telescope, she'd be calling out some of the objects that she was discovering or noting that Messier had discovered. And he, re- William and Caroline, re-examined the Messier objects and with their better telescopes. Yeah, remember he was looking through a, a refractor through the skies <laughs> of Paris, no, a three-inch refractor at the time. <laughs> Uh, so he, he did a, uh, William did a great deal of, of work on Messier's, but he carefully never claimed anything, any of Messier's objects as his own. All the 2,500 odd objects that Caroline and William discovered were their, the objects that, that he was discovering as he was doing these trawls, and he left the Messier objects alone. So she was influential in him recording these objects as he was going through, doing his star count to actually determine the shape of the heavens and the construction of the heavens, which was the magnum opus that William's career in astronomy really was. It was great to hear more about the work the Herschels did aside from William's famous discovery of Uranus. But we'd only scratched the surface in our discussion of the Herschel's astronomical exploits. They even went as far as raiding the wine cellar for a decent solar filter. Andy picks up the story. The holy grail for astronomy in the uh, 18th century was to discover the distance to the stars. Yeah. And of course, using the old Ptolemaic theory that all stars are equal, therefore dimmer ones are further away, they thought that double stars would be a key in finding the distance to the stars by using parallax with the Earth's movement around the Sun, which they already knew to be uh, give you a baseline of 182 million miles, yeah. uh, they thought, well, surely this is a big enough distance to, to <laughs> enable us to, to get the parallax error that we need. Well, we know that wasn't actually done until the star in was it Cygnus 63 in uh, the mid 19th century. But whilst he was doing this, William actually discovered a lot of these stars that are assumed to be line of sight doubles were in fact revolving around each other. Right. He discovered binary stars again whilst he was here in Bath. So that was the first, um, I guess, first evidence that the gravity which we thought ruled our solar system was actually existing yes, beyond. Yes. Yes. He took the Newtonian uh, principles out. To stars, and in fact, 
that becomes the principal way that we can measure the physical properties of stars today is because we know they are in gravitational uh, symbiosis so that we can actually do work on the mass yeah, and exactly. the of stars were from knowing that these stars were actually binary stars. So the, it's one of these great sh- shoulders of giants that we're standing no, on. No, exactly. It's taken on, not only is he taking on understanding our solar system further out than we've ever had it before, taking out our understanding of, the, uh, of our galaxy at least. Yes, yes, yes. He, he was doing work on the shape of our galaxy. He didn't get everything right, but he was using philosophy of the time, which was the best he had. The work he was doing on the uh, configuration of our own Milky Way lacked the understanding of interplanetary dust that we know obscures the centre of our galaxy. Uh, then we, he was actually, uh, some of the work he was doing on the sun, of course, yeah, claiming that sunspots must be cool enough, like red coals on a, like the black part of coals on a fire or charcoal, you can actually touch them. So they must be cool <laughs> enough for somebody to live on. It was the sort of the statement he was trying to make, you know, surely they must be cool enough. He wasn't saying that he'd seen cities on, no, the, sure. <laughs> on the sun. But uh, the work that he was doing on that, he, he experimented with over 200 liquids uh, that he actually put in front of an eyepiece. He built an eyepiece on his telescope that actually had a glass-sided, double glass-sided jug that he filled with liquids so that he would determine which he could see the sun the best with. They already knew that liquid would act as a good absorber of a lot of the harmful rays. So that's basically an early filter. Ma- yes, yes, telescope. yeah. And he actually determined upon a good claret as being <laughs> the best liquid. To, perhaps he was drinking too much of this Maybe. he determined what the surface of the sun eventually <laughs> would have been. An expensive filter. <laughs> if you think you find it expensive today, I guess. But he was a happy filter. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. I thought you could drink it once finished. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, his work on the sun, and we know that uh, in common with, with many astronomers later on, you know, the, the view of craters on the moon, perhaps they were volcanic in origin. Well, perhaps some of them maybe. We're still not sure that no, every one sure. is an impact crater. Uh, but it's certainly interesting that, you know, that some of the documentation that he was going through uh, with, his, with the astronomers in France was actually on the nature of the craters on the moon and in fact this is one of his trips when he went to see Napoleon he was actually seeing the Place and and, and, and even Messier uh, when he was over there and he actually was discussing with them and then they were putting him right on their views on what was happening the craters on the moon so it's quite interesting that he was actually using a lot of European astronomers ahead of British astronomers at the time he was in high society, but at the poorer end of high society. But certainly he made his presence felt a fantastic man. I've had a wonderful day down here in Bath, finding out more about the discovery of Uranus. Learning about the house, the Herschels and their astronomy has added an extra layer of fascination to my observation of Uranus last week. Contented with my day's work, I was about to leave the museum. But on my way out, I spotted out of the window a strange-looking steel object in the centre of the garden. To my surprise, Jodra Bank was about to creep into the conversation. I'll leave you from Bath with this. The spiky object is 
an installation in stainless steel by an artist called Ruth Moyer and it's part of Spaced Out UK which was a national initiative, a national educational initiative which took place in 2006 and 2007. Is that the what that must be the one um, where you have a scale model of the solar system around uh, the UK representing different parts uh, of our solar system and actually our, uh, our beloved Lovell telescope at Georgia Bank is um, if that was the sun then um, this would be Uranus. That's right. I think. So yes. give you an idea of, of just the scale of the universe if um, the Lovell telescope in, in uh, Macclesfield is the sun then all the way down here in Bath we have um, a scale model of, of Uranus as well. That's right yes. And so, uh, where better place to have it? Than, absolutely. Um, that, that must be quite a bit of a stroke of luck really that that line of um, to scale actually happened to pass through Bath. It, it's an unbelievable stroke <laughs> of luck. I don't quite know how that was managed, but indeed, so we're the beneficiaries of this wonderful piece of sculpture, um, which is a delight and, and fits in so beautifully with the garden and everything in it. Thanks, Colin. So, fascinating history about the Herschels. And if you do get a chance, do go and visit the Herschel Museum in Bath. Now, without any further ado, let's go straight into Ask an Astronomer Time, and answering your questions is Dr. Tim O'Brien. Thanks again for coming in and answering questions. Okay. Now, we had a special question for you. It actually came from uh, somebody calling you up. Yeah, yeah. I just thought I'd throw this one in. It wasn't actually from a Jodcast listener, so I know I'm cheating, um, <laughs> but uh, I thought it was sort of interesting since it's it's a uh, we quite commonly get these uh, sort of phone calls about about lights in the sky. And of course, you know the you know the implication being that are they related to some sort of extraterrestrial alien activity? Yes. Um, and and this particular one, it was funny because I'd, I'd just been talking about it to somebody else, referring back to a phone call I'd had from a journalist uh, uh, earlier towards the end of last summer, uh, and I'd just been mentioning it to somebody, telling the story. Anyway, earlier this week, that same journalist uh, rang me back again, um, and it turned out it was a it was a continuation of the story. So. What happened was the the original call was about um, uh, seeing uh, a light in the sky that was um, uh, unusual, unidentified, flying, therefore an unidentified flying object. <laughs> and in fact, there'd been a video posted uh, on YouTube of this thing. Um, and sure enough, it looked pretty weird. It was a, a sort of glowing orange thing that sort of appeared over the rooftop of a house down the street on this video and sort of moved slowly across the sky sort of from left to right uh, sort of upwards from left to right and then and then another one appeared from roughly the same direction and and followed along and then another one appeared and hmm. and so on and at the time I was sort of discussing you know the usual sorts of uh, uh issues that the you know of course we can't not necessarily tell what these things were and it, always the difficulty in terms of how fast they're moving and how far away they are and and this sort of thing um and uh and actually it was just when I put the phone down that I realized what it was i I, I suspected I realized what it was, which was that um that it was one of these um uh lanterns these uh i don't know if you've ever seen them they're like paper balloons oh right, and you light a candle in the base of it, and mm. the heat from the from the candle uh, inflates this paper balloon basically and it and it takes off and they're a lovely thing to set off at night and I first uh saw these in Thailand a, co- a few years ago. Um, and they're becoming increasingly popular in this country. And in fact, so, so that was my explanation for the last summer's, uh, example. Um, and I saw one at, at New Year, actually, in Manchester. Um, mm. 
uh, and this guy rang me back and it turned out he was describing exactly the same thing people have been reporting them and I said to him you know I'm as sure as you can be about anything that that's what these that's what these things are and in fact you know the, the signature of them is that they look as though they look a bit like they are on fire they're sort of glowing orange right. and they drift quite slowly they rise um, and then you often get a sequence of them because obviously whoever's setting them off is obviously setting off more than one, mm. one after the other. And you get this sort of irregular sequence and they tend to follow the same path because obviously it's the prevailing wind and the rising and drifting. And then, you know, and I said, and did the first one in the chain disappear first? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then the others carried us. So of course, that one's burning out and, yeah, and yeah. so on. So that's what it is. So, I mean, I guess if we were sort of sitting in... Uh, maybe this this is a common thing in Southeast Asia particularly I guess maybe that's where it's come from if we were sitting there no one would be thinking these were unidentified they'd know what they were they see them all the time but in this country perhaps it's uh, it's it's a bit more unusual so anyway it's a new a new class of unidentified flying object is the, is the, is the flaming lantern was there a uh, celebration or was it coincided with a particular festival date or anything like that did you did you look um i don't i don't i'm not too sure it was i mean i know that as i say i saw one on it was right on uh, on new year's eve in fact this mm. year in manchester i saw a sequence of them going up and heading across manchester this phone call was just earlier this week so that's a few weeks after new year so whether i mean i guess they're the sort of thing people set off at weddings and things now so uh, mm. but i guess we'll hear about them so if you spot them that's what they are i think <laughs> very good now we have two questions from Mark Ashley. Uh, his first one goes as follows. I went outside on a moonlit evening recently and saw a fantastic halo and moon dogs around the moon. I think it's due to ice crystals in the atmosphere. I was wondering if other planets or their moons exhibit the same types of atmospheric phenomena that we see on the Earth. Not just moon dogs, but also sun pillars, sun halos, rainbows, etc. Yeah, well... I mean, these things are beautiful things to see, and they are—they are, they are um, as, he, as he says, he's right. They are these uh, ice crystals high up in the atmosphere. So it's basically like a rainbow effect. Mm. Slightly different because the because they're ice crystals, but you see these sort of big, lovely halos around the moon. I don't know whether you've ever seen one of these things. Yes. And you see sort of that there's a darker region inside the the mm. ring quite often, where there's less light coming through than there is just outside the ring, where it's been refracted away. Um, so I would guess the answer as to whether you see these things in other planetary atmospheres, I, I don't see why not. If there's, if there's something that's going to form ice crystals in the atmosphere, of course, the conditions are right for that to happen. I suppose one interesting question is, has anybody ever, have any of these spacecraft, for example, that are on Mars, these uh, rovers, for example, ever taken a photograph that shows an atmospheric phenomenon like that? That might be, yeah. I'm not sure I remember seeing such a photograph. I can't recall one either, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. No. Nope. So perhaps a, a quick internet search might turn a few up. Yeah, well, if anybody spots one, perhaps they should let us know, and, uh, but mm. that'd be quite a nice thing to see, wouldn't it? There's no um, reason why you know, these sort of phenomena shouldn't occur on other, uh, other planets, so long as there's, as you say, some kind of atmosphere and the same uh, properties of, uh, yeah. of, of material. I mean, of course, you know, Mars, water, ice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, there's no rain on Mars as far as we've seen, so we're unlikely to see rainbows. Um, I guess, you know, and maybe the question of whether you're going to get ice crystals in the atmosphere of Mars is water ice crystals sounds unlikely, doesn't it? So, you know, we're probably, you know, that's maybe pushing it a bit to expect something like that. But maybe whether there's any other... Uh, any other crystals that might be able to form that might that might do a similar job? I'm not too sure, actually. Well, there's plenty of suspended dust in the Martian atmosphere, isn't there? So yeah. the yeah. atmospheric phenomena that we see on Earth due to suspended dust mm-hmm. should see something similar on Mars. One yeah. would think. Yeah. Anyway, worth it. Worth, perhaps worth worth keeping an eye out. Mm. Read to this. I remember back in the day when I started 
playing around with computers and the best things you could do with the computer was to program it yourself to do interesting things. Mm-hmm. So write your own games. You get the, the subscription to a computer magazine and at the back there's usually listings of, uh, of That's fun right. games you, you can type in. Get type it in yourself. <laughs> pages and pages of code in basic. And, uh, I remember one issue of one magazine. I, uh, it was simulating rainbows on Venus. Oh, right. So I just said, well, this is the refractive index of what we think is in the, uh, Venusian atmosphere. Yeah. Plug those numbers in and this is what the rainbow would look like on Venus. Oh, right. Okay. Well, what did it look like? Do you remember? I don't know. Actually, I forgot there's a bug <laughs> in my program. I never actually got to work, but, <laughs> but it was, it, it, you know, it was, it's it fairly straightforward to do these sort of things, uh, as a, as a bit of a game. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, however, there's all sorts of other, you know, details that we won't go into about, you know, the, atmosphere on Venus being particularly thick and the light source quite diffuse and oh, it just goes on and on. But as, you know, young kid of about 10 or 12 learning basic, it was a great thing to do. So, yeah, yeah. Mm, very good. So second question from Mark Ashley is about the solar analemma. Hmm. I saw a picture of one in a magazine and wondered what explains the geometry. It looks like a lopsided figure eight leaning over to the west. So let's start off with what is the yeah. solar analemma. Yeah. Funny old name. Um, I mean, what what he's describing? He's the lopsided figure eight. What what does it mean? Well, basically, what what's traditionally done with an analemma is to uh, is to take a photograph of the sky with the sun in the photograph in the field of view um, at a particular time of day um, on a series of days through the year. So you know, you'd be lucky certainly around here if the sun was visible on most days in the year through the cloud. Um, but basically, you take you take a picture. You, you know every day as best you can at a particular time. So let's say midday, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, with your camera pointing in the same direction, same horizon visible, basically, and you see where the sun is. And so you get a sequence of dots, if you like, the position of the sun um, through the year at that particular time of day. Now, um, an easier way of doing this, if you wanted to try this at home, um, rather, which doesn't necessarily involve having a camera on a tripod pointing in exactly the same direction all the time, um, you can do it with a stick, for example. You could stick a stick in the ground and look at the shadow cast by mm. the, uh, by the sun, uh, and say, for example, mark out, uh, where the tip of the shadow was, yes. uh, and you get the same sort of effect, basically. At, at the same time of day, you mark it, stick a peg in the ground or something, mm. when, um, at the end of the shadow, exactly the same time of day, every, every day as far as possible. Now, um, what you, what you see, um, as is described, is, is a sort of figure eight shape, sort of often sort of tipped over to one side and skewed. Mm. So, um, so that's the analemma. Okay, so now we need to explain, having described what the analemma looks like, now we need to describe why it has the, the shape it does, this sort of figure eight shape. Now, for that, we're going to have to imagine a sort of picture in our heads of uh, the Earth um, orbiting the sun um, and spinning on its own axis. So if we imagine, first of all, that the Earth is orbiting the sun in a, in a perfectly circular orbit, and we imagine for a moment that the spin axis of the Earth, the sort of north-south spin axis, is perpendicular to the plane of the Earth's orbit. So if you imagine the Earth's orbit, if we sit in this table in front of us here is a nice circular table, and the Sun's at the centre of that circular table, and the Earth moves around the rim of that table in a lovely circular orbit, and the spin axis would just stick up vertically out of the plane of the table. Um, so the Earth spins around once in 24 hours, um, and basically we'd look at, look at midday, we'd look at the Sun being sort of um, overhead, uh, midday, we look at that, we look at that position of it in the sky, we see a dot. 
and then we wait 24 hours, the Earth moves a little bit round its orbit, um, the sun would in fact be in the same position in the sky. Um, after 24 hours, we'd see a dot in the same place. We wait another 24 hours, we'd see a dot in the same place. So in fact, um, the analemma for a situation like that, for the Earth in a circular orbit with, um, with the spin axis of the Earth pointed straight up, uh, would be a dot mm. on the sky. Very boring, not a figure out at all. Now, one of the obvious things that's wrong with that picture um, is that the spin axis of the Earth isn't perpendicular to the plane of the Earth's orbit. We're tipped over by 23.5 degrees. Mm. So we've got to imagine taking our little spin axis now, tipping it over by 23.5 degrees. Let's imagine, um, let's think about what difference that makes. Now, um, imagine that it's that it's midsummer for us in the northern hemisphere here. So um, the north spin axis, we're tipping towards the sun, pointing directly towards the sun. Uh, and we imagine again this position at midday, the sun's, you know, depending where we are on the earth, whether it's overhead or not, but we imagine where the sun is at midday, sort of looking south at somewhere in the sky, quite high up for us, okay, because we're tipped over towards it. Now, very simply, you can understand the difference between uh, midsummer and midwinter, because as the earth moves around the, uh, moves around the sun, then by the time we get to midwinter, the the sun is low down in the sky because it's actually over the southern hemisphere now. So you expect to see a, a difference vertically. You expect to mm. see the sun high in the sky in, in midsummer, very low in the sky in midwinter. So it explains why instead of having this single dot, um, we get this sort of motion up and down. You're right. Okay. But the question is, why do we get this motion east to west? Why Why is the sun sometimes to the east of where you might expect it? at midday, and sometimes to the west of where you might expect mm. it. And it's that that results in the figure eight, because it's a combination of mo the up and down motion and the east to west motion maps out this, this figure eight shape. In this situation where we've got a circular orbit, but the Earth is tipped over at a certain angle to the uh, orbital plane, mm. the analemma looks like a perfect figure eight. The yeah. top and the bottom lobes are exactly yeah. the same. So yeah. we're trying to figure out, yeah. well, as you say, we, we, you know, it's, it's a common thing to see that in, in summertime, wherever you are, the sun is generally high in the sky at, yeah. at noon and in winter at noon, it's sort of low in the sky. Mm. So there's the up and down motion. Yeah. But we have to understand why is it, why is there some east yeah. west extent? Why has it got a figure yeah. eight? Why isn't yeah. it just trace out a line yeah. in our simplified, yeah. uh, non-elliptical yeah. orbit yeah. situation. So let's imagine that we've, we've got this, again, think about this, we're sitting in front of a table, we've got a circular table in front of us, we've got a sun in the middle, we've got a, we've got an earth that's moving around this, the outer rim of this table, and and, and we're looking down at it from above, um, where uh, the northern uh, uh, north pole of the earth is, is, is at the top of this thing, so looking down on the north pole of the earth, if you like, but we've tipped over the spin axis, to point towards the sun at the moment, at the position that the, the Earth is in. Um, well, um, we know that the Earth actually spins um, uh, towards the east, so it spins from the west towards the east. So as we're looking down on the Earth uh, at the moment now, um, the Earth would sort of be uh, spinning anticlockwise, if you look down on it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, actually, it moves around the sun in also in an anticlockwise direction. Okay, so so it's this sort of prograde motion, it's called, where the, the Earth is spinning um, uh, anticlockwise as we look down on the North Pole and uh, anticlockwise as it moves around the Sun. So, now the interesting thing is, of course, what happens here is we think about the spin axis. The spin axis in midsummer is pointing straight towards the Sun, 
What doesn't happen as the, as the, as the Earth moves around the sun is that the spin axis stays pointing towards the sun. That would, wouldn't result in the seasons, for example. Mm. Um, the spin axis stays pointing in basically the same direction in space. So from a position where in midsummer where the spin axis is pointing straight towards the sun, um, as day on day, um, gradually the spin axis, if you can imagine this now, the spin axis would end up pointing off towards one side of the sun. Uh, and if you think about the direction of motion of the of the Earth relative to the sun here, then in fact the sun ends up farther to the east of where the spin axis is pointing because of this motion, rotation of the Earth towards the east and the fact that the, the Earth is moving around the sun's orbit in the same direction, in that sort of counterclockwise uh, direction. You end up with the sun gradually being farther and farther to the east of where you'd expect it to be after 24 hours because of that, that offset. So in fact, um, f going from midsummer, farther on in the year, um, towards the autumn, then the sun will actually um, uh, move somewhat to the east of where you'd expect it to be. Um, and of course, then that doesn't continue because this, uh, because of the sort of circular orbit, it's got to come back to being where it was before. So you get this gradual drift towards the east, and then a gradual drift back towards the west again to its maximum offset, and then a gradual drift back towards the east as you head back through the year. So that's what explains this mm. sort of east-west motion. The actual tilt of the Earth not only causes it to move up and down, but also causes this motion east to west, and that results yeah. in a figure eight. Now, you get a bit of funny skewedness going on, some effects that happen there. Um, in fact, because all this time we were talking about a circular orbit, in fact, the, the Earth's orbit around the sun is elliptical. Hmm. Now, what that means is is that the speed of the Earth actually changes um, as you move around its orbit. So when the Earth is actually uh, closest to the Sun, it's moving faster, and so it moves a, a larger a larger distance around its orbit in a day than it would do at times of year when it's uh, farther away from the Sun, and that causes the this figure eight shape to be somewhat distorted compared to a perfect figure eight. Right. So the so, uh, the two lobes add exactly the same. Shape and size. That's right. Yeah. So, but, but basically that's the, it's quite, it's interesting how mm. complicated these things are, you know, when you, when you, when you look at them, because it's a very simple observation to make, um, that, that you get this figure eight shape. I think the, the up and down motion is pretty simple to understand in terms of the tilt of the Earth's axis, but certainly it's not, um, trivial to think about how the tilt also affects, uh, results in this east-west motion. But I hope I've done, as good a job as we can do I think so. um, to explain that. So the summary is that the analemma has its shape because the Earth is tilted on its axis 23 and a half degrees uh, with respect to the plane of its orbit around the Sun. Yep. And second thing, the Earth's orbit around the Sun is elliptical, That's not right. circular. These two things are independent. So um, yeah. I've actually noticed uh, on the web there are some people who have computed what the analemma looks like if you were on Mars, for instance, or right. Pluto, mm -hmm. and uh, they look quite different. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a bit of fun. Go and check that out. We'll put some links on, on the show page. Oh, one other thing to mention is that um, the analemma uh, is tilted in the sky depending on your latitude. Mm. So don't expect to see the same analemma yeah. in Greece as you would in uh, yeah. New Zealand, for instance. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you very much indeed for answering those questions. Thank you very much okay. to uh, Mark Ashley for sending in his questions. And do please continue to send in your questions to the Jodcast via the webpage at www.jodcast.net. You can write them on a postcard. You can send us a letter. You can jump onto the forum and ask your questions there. You can give us a call or send us an email. We'll accept your questions any old way and we'll endeavour to answer them as quickly as possible.
Now on to feedback, your emails. Many thanks to Mark Shaw, Mahini Nima, James J. Marsala, Joe, listening in Wisconsin, who suggests that we add a note about comets in each Night Sky segment. That's a good one. We'll ask Ian to uh, see if he can do that. And from Joe Jones, sticking with Ian Morrison, he noted that in one of the previous episodes of the Jodcast, he could hear police sirens going on in the background. Well, Joe, that's possibly true. It could actually be uh, ambulances passing the Alan Turing building where we record the Jodcast at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics down Upper Brook Street because just down the road is the Manchester Royal Infirmary. So while we attempt to ensconce ourselves deep inside the building and shield ourselves from interfering noise from outside, unfortunately sometimes those sirens do manage to leak through. So no, Ian Morrison is not on the run from the police. It's just simply because we're quite close to one of the bigger hospitals in the country. And many thanks to Rob Johnson. And a big hello to Adam Lane, who writes on the Jodcast Group Facebook page. He's very happy to have found the Jodcast. And welcome also to all our new group members on Facebook. If you are on Facebook, please do join the Jodcast Group. Now, as ever, you can send your feedback to us via the website www.jodcast.net. Really enjoy reading your feedback. We appreciate all the comments and suggestions that you've got for us, and also letting us know that you're still out there and enjoying listening to us. Again, please also send us your astronomy-related questions to us, and we'll get Dr. Tim O'Brien to answer them for you. Well, that's all for the Jodcast uh, for this episode. Many thanks for listening. We do hope you're enjoying your new year so far, and we look forward to talking to you again. So from all of us here at the Jodcast, Jod on.